Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Robin Buller, your host. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Sarah Wobik Segev, who's joining us from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, where she's a postdoctoral fellow at the Kubner Center for German History. She will be talking with us about her new book, Homes Away from Home Jewish Belonging in 20th Century Paris, Berlin, and St. Petersburg. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about our discussion, and I want to get to the book, but before we do, I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I was born and raised in Calgary. I did my undergraduate at the University of Toronto, and then I did my MA and my PhD at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I had the great privilege of working uh, under the supervision of David Sorkin, studying with David McDonald and Rudy Koshar and Lee Roberts. Um, Steve Ashheim, when he was visiting as a guest professor, was very inspirational. And of course, later when I came back as a postdoc, I got to spend even more time working with Tony Michaels. And it was a very formative, very important um, experience. And how did you come to study Jewish history? What brought you to the question of, you know, Jewish identity in Europe during this period? In some respects, I think that's a hard question. I mean, this is a matter of attraction, you know, what attracts us to a certain field, what attracts us to people, even in that sense. Um, I think beyond the personal issues of my own affiliation, I think on an intellectual level, the interest started because of European history. Um, I've tried a lot lately to think about this. um, And in past, I mean, I've been asked this question a number of times. And now with the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, I think it's actually finally hit home. Why? Um, the first time that I left Canada was on a trip that my grandparents took me on to Europe and one of our stops was in West Berlin and it's 1988, it's West Berlin. And of course they take me to the Brandenburg gate, but the Brandenburg gate is on the East side. So on the West side, you get to see a platform and you get to see the wall. And then you get to see on the other side of the wall, the Brandenburg gate. And a year and a couple of months go by and I'm watching TV as a child back in Calgary And all of a sudden, there are reports of the fall of the wall. And that's a really big deal. And I'm a child. I don't really know. um, I mean, on one hand, I just know that this is huge. I know that this is big. I know that when I was there, it was there. It seemed very physical. It seemed very stable. It seemed like it was always going to be there. And a year and a couple months later, it's no longer there. And um, I think I realized there this moment of global historical importance that I was witnessing, albeit on the TV screen, was really a spark in my own fascination with modern European history. Um, Adding in modern European Jewish history, I think it's because I see in Jewish history um, a particularly potent test case, maybe even a laboratory of sorts, for so many of the issues and themes of modern European history. We can also say other periods of time for that matter. But I think if we think about new ideologies, new movements like nationalism, democracy, and we take these big ideas and we can study them from any possible number of ways and and, uh, fashions, 
But taking Jewish history is like a prism to understand these in ways, in a really practical sense, in some respects. We get to see how ideas of nationalism, how ideas of democracy worked or didn't work when we ask uh, and take the question of how did Jews relate? How did the state relate to Jews? How did Jews relate to these uh, questions? How did non-Jews relate to Jews? And I think as a group that is both insiders and outsiders, we learn, we have a really particularly productive way of studying European history. Um, I think why issues of identity interest me, I think, again, coming from a multicultural society, we're constantly asking ourselves about what makes us different from one another, what makes us similar, how do different minority groups maintain a sense of distinctiveness, even as we attempt to integrate into society. I think these are things that there is a certain presentism that comes from that, but I think it informs why I was attracted to this field and how I got got in. I I couldn't agree more, especially about about what you say about Jews being like a lens into these, um, you know, these changes and these developments that are happening in European history more broadly. Um, so let's let's stick with being a bit broad, and let's start as you do in your book with a little bit of background information about Jewish life in Europe in the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries. And I guess this is a big question because you're studying three different places. Um, But, you know, you write that this was a period of immense change in Jewish life. There was a transition happening between an emphasis on the community to an emphasis on the individual. And I was wondering if you could expand on this and tell us, you know, what some of those changes were and why, why they matter. Okay. So across Europe in this long 19th century, we witness the expansion of a lot of new political ideas and movements nationalism, liberalism, socialism, and these movements seek to redefine the body politic. They're also associated, however, with movements that seek to emancipate different segments of the society, whether it's the proletariat, whether it's religious or minorities, including Jews, or even women. These different movements seek to enfranchise, to an extent at least. Um, And then in that sense, they are also linked to growing efforts to create institutions of representative politics. And the goal of an increased number of groups is to seek political voice and representation, either in parliaments or in associations or through political parties. But this is connected to the question of who belongs to to a given society, because not everyone wants everyone to, even in the liberal circles, not everyone wants everybody to belong. There's a question of who belongs and who doesn't. And what we see across Europe, not homogeneously, not easily, But across Europe in the 19th century, we do see that increasingly states try to define populations as individual citizens and not as members of corporate bodies. Even in imperial Russia, we see a loosening of certain boundaries. This is what Ben Nathans calls, Benjamin Nathans, forgive me, calls selective integration. Um, And of course, there, full emancipation takes much longer and only happens in 1917. But we do see attempts, I mean, we see also in the 1905 uh, revolution attempts to find greater voice for greater numbers of individuals living in um, Imperial Russia. And I argue that in this broader political environment, where there's more and more, where states are looking more and more at their populations, the populations that live within their borders as individuals, as citizens at times as well, I argue that Jews face their own Jewish question. What does it mean to be Jewish when each individual can choose how to affiliate um, and if to affiliate? So what does personal choice do to a community? And we can think about laws like um, laws about civil marriage, laws in Europe, in 
for in Germany and in France allow for civil marriage and in fact make it the only possible way to marry. This allows subtly intermarriage. This allows marriage between Catholics and Protestants, between Protestants and Jews, between Catholics and Jews in ways that weren't possible beforehand. So what does this personal choice do to the community? And in this sense, though, even though I mentioned intermarriage, the book isn't actually about assimilation. It's more about Jewish difference and how Jews sought to maintain a sense of difference and to maintain the Jewish community, however they define it, in the context of greater individual choice. Now, on top of the political changes, there's also massive waves of migration, both within the countries from rural areas to urban ones, and also from Eastern Europe to Western Europe and beyond. On top of this, finally, another ingredient into this potpourri is the very important socioeconomic and cultural changes. We have the rise and spread of consumer and leisure culture. This is a widespread trans-European phenomenon. People have more time and space to interact with one another on their own terms and importantly, according to their own tastes. As for why this matters, well, it's because it's a revolution. Altogether, the movement of people, again, within the countries, across the continent, political changes and new movements, as well as cultural and economic developments, this create an entirely different and very new way of affiliating, feeling it as Jews to the community. And this is the basis of the logic of affiliation among Jewish communities today in Europe, in North and South America. So it has, it's clearly has ramifications for how we live our lives today or how Jewish communities live their lives today. Right. Okay. So the time, the significance of the time period makes sense. And then why, why the comparative approach? I mean, it's, it's very compelling and, um, you know, I think it makes the story that much bigger. Um, but it's so much work. Why, why, <laughs> why these three cities? Why, and why Paris, Berlin, and St. Petersburg? It's a big question. <laughs> and it's one I ask myself a lot too. Why did I do this to myself? Um, <laughs> why? <laughs> what, what was I thinking? Um, no, no there, there were good reasons. There are always good reasons for the things that we choose. Um, so, I mean, though... So I don't want to create too much of a straw man, but anybody who's familiar with um, Jewish studies will know that there has been, um, there was, in a sense, still is a divide between Eastern and Western European history. Now we have sort of two uh, um, ideas of how they, how they, how both sides of Europe comes to modernity. Uh, of course, this is Jacob Katz's um, older way of looking and dividing in uh, Europe, where Eastern European Jewish history is. Um, typically, in his rendering at least, seen as being more authentically political um, with religious movements like Hasidism. Um, you know, this is the story of Zionism, Bundism, and Western Europe, again, at least in this one school, uh, emerges out of Jacob Katz, is seen as more of the story of assimilation or failed assimilation. This is an overgeneralization. Yes, uh, that approach is out of date in a lot of respects, uh, but it still does have its influence on assumptions that we make in the field and how we choose topics. And on, and this is something that was in the back of my mind, that idea of an East-West divide of Europe. At the same time, the newer research, great research that's done, been done, again, by Benjamin Nathans, by Jeffrey Weidlinger, Nathan Mayu, Scott Uli, and many others, has really actually shown that certain processes that we do identify with Western Europe actually were happening in Eastern Europe. So the things that we expressions of modernity, again, big amorphous concept that it is, um, like the rise of liberalism or political liberalism or the expansion of consumer culture existed and were important in Eastern Europe. 
So we knew that there that the the east west divide is not as clear cut, not as simple, and certainly not as black and white. Um, but to really test this idea, to really test this divide between eastern and western Europe, we have to try it. We have to compare. So the only way you can really test the case is to compare the cities. So I decided I wanted to compare a western, a central, and an eastern European country or city. I didn't want to just do the countries were big. <laughs> I wanted to do a city. <laughs> yeah, um, forgive sense. me for all the people who wanted me to do a rural history too. I'll, I'll save that for another book, but to do urban communities um, in, um, again, Western, Central, and Eastern Europe. Um, I didn't seek to prove the East-West divide wrong or to prove it right. I wanted to test it. And so I wasn't always looking for similarities. This was never a goal. It was to just see what, what we could see if we compared them. And um, as for the individual cities, well, it's actually fairly practical considerations. Um, I would have loved to have done Warsaw. I would have loved to have done Budapest. But I cannot read or speak or um, do anything in Polish or in Hungarian. I have to use the skills that I have. Um, And so that does limit me. Um, So I have the French. um, And so looking at France, which which city does one? Well, until World War II. Until the end of World War II, Paris is the undisputed champion of um, French Jewish, uh, the French Jewish community. In that, I mean that it's the largest community by a long shot. Um, so it's a pretty obvious choice. If I want to do a community in France until before World War II, it's it's Paris. Move east to Germany. There are more choices of um, interesting urban communities that have things to offer. But I've already chosen one capital city with the largest Jewish population. I thought, Berlin, this makes sense. It's the largest Jewish population, and it's a capital city. I could have chosen Hamburg. I could have chosen Breslau. I could have chosen Frankfurt for all good reasons. But I've already chosen one capital city, and I've already chosen um, with the largest community. But then I'm left with the problem that I've got Russian, and the two capital cities are not exactly comparable in terms of population. At the same time, they're the capital cities. I could have chosen Odessa. It would have been slightly more logical in terms of the population. But then I was really worried that the first thing that reviewers would say is that I cherry picked. You've got two capitals. Why not go with the capital city? So I picked the capital city that was the capital city at the time period, at the start of the time period under study. So in the 1890s, it's St. Petersburg. That was the choice. So I tried to stay somewhat honest with the choices and and use it. But there's a lot of practicality behind it. Well, and I think it works really well, um, obviously, and I'm, I'm excited to get into your findings. And before we do that, I wonder if we could just quickly talk about, I guess, about methods, which you've, you have already hinted at, but what were your, so what were your major research questions, first of all, but then secondly, how did you go about trying to answer them? Um, you've already mentioned that, you know, you were functioning in, in at least three languages um, and were you also going to archives in each of these cities? You know, where did you do your research and how did you do it? Okay. Um, so the major, this, about the re- major research questions, um, this was a once a dissertation, though I rewrote mm. a lot of it afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually, in preparation for the interview, I decided I would, um, or I guess a little bit of giggles, I went back to my original dissertation prospectus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I oh, wanted wow, to see how much things had changed. I still have, yeah. um, and dug it out. Um, not so dusty because it's on the computer, but I, I <laughs> deep in the files, <laughs> deep in the files. Exactly. Lost I, um, 
I took a look at some of the main question that I asked for the dissertation, or at least at the prospectus. So in a very early point in the research, in some respects, before I really sat down and did the research was about how did Jews consume culture? And how did this consumption of culture inform identity? And in some respects, actually, I think about it, there is actually this remains a guy, a central guiding question to the research and even to the later writing and writing. But I did notice that over time, another major question uh, emerged. And that was really about how and where community was being formed. I think um, I realized, and I was told very quickly after, uh, as I was preparing the dissertation perspectives, that, you know, identity is a bit of a fuzzy concept. Um, someone said it's like um, trying to nail jelly on the wall. And th- there is something to be true. There is, it can be a very complicated one. There's great literature on that as well. And so I wanted to be con- as concrete as possible. So I tried to look at how identity or belonging played out on an everyday level. So I really wanted to explore how people lived their lives and not just what they said or wrote, about, but what they were doing and where they did it. And the more I read, the more I researched, I understood that there were, that there, there were specific things happening in very particular places. And that these places were revealing patterns of belonging. And so in that sense, the book very clearly um, is indebted to the recent spatial turn. There's a lot of the place matters and interactions in place matters. It's not just that the place itself is important. It's how people interact within places and what they're doing in interactions is really, really important. And this made me realize that, um, or this allowed me this understanding allowed me to take a look at how Jews socialized with one another and how they created networks of belonging, how they found life partners, how they raised their children and how they celebrated holidays and rites of passage. And it also allowed me to see how religious and lay leaders responded to these changes. And that also opened the door to discussion of emotions um, as a sign of how the changes were understood and how the developments were understood. Um, you asked about how I tried to answer these questions and where I went. I mean, I did travel a lot. This was a, um, a travel intensive, um, book. I spent a, a large deal of time in Germany, in France, and especially in Israel. In, um, Berlin, I got to go to the Stasi archives, um, back when they were still in a right, um, close to Alexanderplatz in those awful, awful Plattenbau buildings. Um, and also spent time in Heidelberg. Um, in France, again, um, a number of different places, actually. And what I found and what I was looking for, I was trying to read everything that I could get my hands on that had something to do with these communities, especially at the beginning, because I wasn't sure where I was going to find these interactions or how Jews were at the time as I was thinking about it, consuming culture. So I was reading published and unpublished memoirs and autobiographies. I was going through personal personal archives. I was looking through the archives of Jewish organizations and associations and welfare institutions. And that's, by the way, where I noticed there were a lot of invitations to Jewish holiday gatherings, including Purim and Hanukkah balls. Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of this phenomenon to the yes, same extent. And I found said, the like, same thing. It's so interesting. Yeah. And, and it's, it's everywhere. What was really shocking is it's everywhere and it's really important and it stays, it remains really an important practice into the post-war era. It's this very big, um, it's a big deal. They were big events. I also found, um, got a hold of oral history uh, interviews with Hebrew U. So I found a very, very large volume of material. Um, in Heidelberg, I um, found the personal archives of Rabbi Nathan Levinson, who was the rabbi in Berlin from 1950 to 1953. And the post-war correspondence includes um, letters from women who wanted to convert because their 
soon to be husbands um, were Jewish or in some cases, and this was really fascinating because they were already married to Jewish men and they now want, and they were very concerned about the future generation in a post Holocaust era. Now these conversion, the conversion letters were, are, they're, and people know about conversion letters. They've been written about it. I mean, because a lot of them were not so authentic and not so motivated by, there were any number of people who convert, who wanted to convert to sort of, whitewash their past or get care packages. But what I found fascinating was the legitimate um, requests. But the other thing that I really loved about that collection was uh, that Rabbi Levinson and his wife ran children's summer camps. And in one, one and they were able to get money by um, raising funds in the United States. And they asked the children, they asked the children to write letters to their American friends. And anyone who does children's history knows that it's so difficult to find out what children think. I mean, it's this, it's this really, really difficult element of children's history. And so you finally have these letters and they just talk about how much food they ate. And you're like desperate for things. And they did talk. There was a little bit of information about the fact that they're coming from different sectors, that they were, saw children, that they were meeting with children that they knew from other places. So that there does give a little bit. And those came from the older children. The little children were talking a lot more about what they ate, which also says something about their lives, which says something about the material concerns of the post-war, um, post-war era. But of course, one has great hopes when you get to read children's letters and then and it's about the food, um, which is fine too. Right. It, it really does make sense in the post-war years. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I read a lot of newspapers. Anything that was published in one of those cities and sometimes things that weren't but had reference to these cities, I, I got my hands on. Um, and so one of my favorite journals, again, here in this case, not actually in one of the cities, but um, coming out of Poland was Shadchan, so the matchmaker, um, the, the journal that comes to the rescue of the Jewish community by helping make sure that the future of the Jewish community was ensured through good matches. Um, and it's a really amusing, it's, it's a serious journal, but the way that they present themselves, <laughs> you know, we're going to solve all your problems because the problem of, of the modern or modernizing Jewish community was that their marriages weren't, weren't being arranged in the proper way. Oh, um, so is the problem, is the problem their individual choice then? And they talked about it as not suitable matches. That's how they, they talked about it. So they were there to, to solve that problem. Um, but um, it, it's still, it was one of the few um, marriage ads that I was able to find that came from somebody living in St. Petersburg because they're far less popular as a medium than, than they were in Paris and in Berlin. So it was, it was fascinating. Um, so every little journal, even small community or small organizations in the different uh, cities got my hands on these journals. Well, and the, I mean, the fact that the archives were so interesting, I think really comes through in the book because you have so many fantastic, you know, tidbits and anecdotes that just really helped to paint a picture of what Jewish life looked like, everyday life looked like in these cities. Um, so let's, let's get to the book. So um, your first chapter, <laughs> we made it. Uh, your first chapter examines Jewish space integration and boundaries in the three cities. So can you tell us how did Jews utilize new social spaces like cafes and hotels to foster these new forms of community and identity? Great question. Um, so there's a lot of literature on cafes uh, and on, on how cafes um, could and did serve as a site of creation, of networking among artists and writers. Um, 
uh, Shaka Pinsker wrote a great new book about that as well. So there's a lot of material about that. But I think it's also important to keep in mind that it wasn't just a site of literary creation. Um, cafes and restaurants could also help, um, particularly among lower classes or among immigrants in places like Berlin and Paris, in creating networks for self-help. They could be places where individuals could come and get help finding employment, where they could get help um, arranging visas. In some cases there in Berlin, I found uh, evidence of people were getting help getting visas back into the Soviet Union. Um, and it was also a place where you could meet with friends. Um, one of the things that we kind of take for granted nowadays is that, um, that electricity is universally available, even if it's expensive in certain places. But I mean, especially for the working class at the turn of the 20th century, the idea that you could come into a place that was warm and had electric lighting, um, these were big deals. And it, at working class cafes, because not every cafe is open to everyone, not every cafe. I mean, there are working class cafes, there are posh uh, um, bourgeois cafes, there are cafes for questionable uh, interactions between men and women. But you, this is a, you could have basically this, they could become extensions of people's living rooms. Um, and in a, in a time when working class homes weren't exactly large or warm or comfortable to invite guests, these were important places to meet. Um, but beyond these really individual stories, I noticed that a lot of groups and associations began to use leisure activities to attract Jews who were increasingly expecting that their leisure time was to be spent and that were in doing things that were entertaining and personally meaningful. So when I talk about the birth of the um, Jewish individual, a lot of what we see, and this is, I guess, an, an emotional, um, element of the story is that people started to expect just as we do today that our time is occupied with things that give us meaning um, and we find this in our leisure activities and of course this is also a time in the late 19th century when people have finally more leisure time and places to um, to engage in that in their leisure activities and so we see in this context a growing number of concerts and balls that were held to do, among other things, raise funds for charities or help uh, or self-help organizations or for political causes. So what we have then is organizations trying to take entertainment as a way to help these sub-communities. And they're using something that's becoming increasingly popular in general among the community, not just in the Jewish community, but obviously in the cities of Paris, Berlin, and St. Petersburg in general, but they're using it for the Jewish community and they're doing it in a way to disseminate new messages. And this is where I find it particularly fascinating because here we have um, the imbrication of culture, of leisure, and of new ways and new logics behind the communities. And what I find really, really interesting is that there are these events become very popular. And they're popular across wide swaths of the Jewish communities across Europe. They represent different political and different religious leanings. And one example that I was thinking about when I was looking back at the book, uh, you have the Société de la Bienfaisance Israelite. It's, it's a charitable organization in Paris. And they're holding a ball already in 1889. And it's their third annual event. So it's happening relatively early in the game. And they're running, they're trying, their goal is to raise money for poor members of the community. So on one hand, this is a, a traditional activity of charitable funds for the poor of the community, but they're doing it with a ball. And it's extraordinarily well attended. There are over a thousand people going to this, including financial and religious elites. So rabbis, consistorial rabbis, and the food that they're serving is kosher. So this means this is a mainstream event. 
And I find that particularly fascinating because we've got an event that's coming in that is being taken from the larger culture. There are potentially halakhic problems about men and women dancing together. There is also potentially problems, depending on who's singing, about about, uh, men hearing a woman sing. Certainly issues that today in Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox communities might cause problems, depending on the leanings of various um, individuals. But this is an accepted mainstream event. And it's an accepted mainstream event, not because of the food, not because of the dancing, but because of the, I don't know how long they were, half an hour or so, perhaps longer, perhaps less, of time that was dedicated in each of these events for speeches. And the speeches were given. At every ball, there was at least one speech, if not several, by leaders of the community who came and told people, you need to give money to this cause, it's really important, or have you heard about Zionism? It's this new political movement. Or, you know, and, or we've got another vision of what um, Jewish uh, community needs to be. So there was, I, these events became an excuse to give speeches, to pr- spread political, social, or cultural messages. And one of the most explicit examples I found was one organization, that's the Montbijou Association for Montbijou in Berlin, that justified its very existence on what it saw as the process of young Jews becoming less and less observant and religiously minding, and thus in, in a state that they needed more. They needed some sort of grounding. And the association argued that the way to do it was through entertainment that they needed to find a way to take interest in history and be connected to Judentum, to Jewishness or to Judaism, but they had to have interesting meetings and they held balls as well. So there's this new logic to community building. It has to be, it's based on personal choice. It has to be personally meaningful and it has to be engaging. It has to be entertaining. And so you have this merging of leisure um, with Jewish associations that are really very firmly trying to propound either um, um, the community, help the community, or propound a certain political message, or even just say, we need to stick together. We need, we need young Jews to remember that they're Jewish. They need to feel comfortable about it. And they need to be strong, uh, feel proud about being Jews. And let's have it through engaging lectures. And, and let's have a ball once a year to raise funds for our association. And you see this across Europe. Also in St. Petersburg, you have similar events, again, where they're merging a ball that helped to raise charity, but they also there, especially I notice a lot of events, this happens in Paris as well, that they, um, these events also include Yiddish songs or um, sections of poetry or plays by Sholem Aleichem or other authors and writers. And what we see here as well then is a new set of heroes, a new set of leaders and role models for the community. And this also shows a new set of priorities. You have secular heroes, for especially in the first 20th century, who these are literary figures who play a really important role in serving as a new basis of pride and a sense of self-identification among Jews. It's no longer necessarily grounded only in religion. It's not only a question of everybody's abandoning your religion. It's something is at, being added to in many cases, religion. So there's a new way of identifying how one is Jewish and what makes one proud of being Jewish. Um, and I saw there are also examples of the, in St. Petersburg, of them staging folk cultural um, events. So we hear concerts that have Hasidic songs. But what I find so really interesting here then is that also shows us just to what extent there's a gap between the past and the present. So they're already commemorating, they're giving a concert of something that a hundred years ago, maybe even 50 years beforehand, they would have heard on the Shabbat table. And maybe some of them still did, but it's also something now that they see with, uh, with a distance. They're now an audience 
witnessing. They're not participants in it. Um, and so instead, uh, we see this, it becomes a culture. Jewish, Jewish culture becomes a, co- becomes, uh, a con- concert, becomes an event that you, that you consume. I see. Very interesting. Um, and so I wonder if we could, let's continue to discuss, you know, how, how, I guess, what people um, you saw Jewishness as continued to transition. So you talked about this a little bit when we were discussing your research questions, but um, you use marriage too as a lens by which we understand, you know, this revolution that's happening. I wonder if you could expand on this a little bit and tell us how um, the transformation of marriage and, you know, what was possible with marriage impacted Jewish lives in these three cities. Um. So on an emotional register, a lot of, there are scholars who've talked about this way. We know that um, there's a transition. Uh, It's actually fairly late for Jews. It's a transition from arranged marriage to companionate marriage. It's a transition that happens um, around the turn of the century, and it definitely ends in certainly in large numbers by um, the 1920s. And some scholars have talked about it as the love revolution, the idea that love marriage becomes much more important. Um, I would argue here on an emotional level that it's not about love and so much as personal satisfaction. Love is part of that. But I think it's about the idea of personal choice becomes really important to how Jews understand it. But unlike a lot of other scholars who like talking about um, the change in rhetoric and the change of ideas and who talk about the um, Haskalah and how Muscillic writers wage a campaign against arranged marriage, one of the things that I try and argue in the book is about place, uh, about how leisure places um, play a role in the emergence of companionate marriages. I gave a silly example to a bunch of students um, half a year ago um, where I said, you know, wouldn't it be nice if somebody came out and said, all of us now have to go swimming four hours a day. This is a new revolutionary idea. We're all going to go swimming. Everyone has to swim four hours a day. I started talking to the students about what happens if we suggest this kind of crazy idea. Is it possible? Is it feasible? We talked about the time that people might not have to invest four hours a day. We talked about, are there enough swimming pools? Swimming pools in Israel are particularly expensive. Um, you know, we talked about how, the, how you, need, uh, you need a physical basis for this. Um, and I argue that and it's a silly thought experiment, but I would argue that in terms of the questions of marriage transitions, that we actually need a physical space, that there was a long standing discourse and it changed in the discourse, but people were still getting married. So uh, with an arranged partner, what really happens and when the transition really emerges from the 1890s to the 1920s is when you have the explosion of leisure spaces. In other words, where you have a physical place where member, in most cases, members of the opposite sex meet one another and choose based on personal taste, a spouse, their own spouse. Um, and of course there's a legal question about whether or not, um, and this is important as well. There's a question of civil marriage. Does it exist or does it not in Paris and Berlin? It exists, um, in the, as of the late 19th century, and it takes longer in, um, Russia. But we have then is this opportunity of choice. And when you have the opportunity to choose your partner, it can do a lot to the community. First of all, you're upending the way that the community has been structured. It's no longer based on the logic of the, of the families and the extended community is now based on individuals. And one of the challenges then is, of course, the fact that 
there's no guarantee that one young Jew is going to choose to marry another young Jew. We see the rise of intermarriage and the anxiety that this causes. And what I find fascinating, what I talk about in the book, what I write about in the book, is that one of the things that happens is in reaction to this process where more and more people have the, finally the ability to choose their own spouse and the place to do it. And we see these, we do see suddenly the rise in intermarriage and the Jewish community and community leaders, both religious and lay, especially lay. First of all, they weigh, they wage a war <laughs> against this in the Jewish press, but they also then start to try and find ways to promote endogamy. Um, you see the B'nai Brit organizing dances. They want to create venues and situations where young Jews can meet with other young Jews and ideally and hopefully fall in love and have children and get, you know, have, get married and have children and continue. Um, so we see then how Jewish organizations become invested in endogamy. We also see how the Jewish press through personal ads becomes a very important space where individual Jews, that we see also in personal ads, something I've touched on a little bit here and I write about elsewhere, that we see through personal ads the, the transition very clearly. We see how in the late 19th century, all of the relationships are being arranged according to the logic of the larger community or of the hopes and of the family. There the dowries are of utmost importance. Um, personal taste doesn't take, we, we don't have descriptions of, you know, likes long watch, uh, walks on the beach in the late 19th century, but you find more descriptions of the self, more uh, talks about, uh, more, um, references to the individual, to individual taste, to individual desire already in the 1920s. And this is a time when you see the transition, but then you also see in the 1920s and into the 1930s, people actually specifically looking not only for the attractive male, but also the attractive Jewish male, but the very, or the attractive Jewish female or the religiously raised as uh, things of that nature. So we see then there's, um, it's clear within a Jewish newspaper, this is a, this is a tool for endogamy. Um, and so we see then this, an importance uh, of how the Jewish individual and how individual choice really affects the very creation of future generations um, of the community through the very choice of who one marries or who one doesn't marry, as the case may be. And again, all sort of various figures in the, in the community are trying to sort of figure out how they can help in one direction or prevent something else from happening. Um, and, and space really matters then. And is it just you know, just a desire for young people, young Jews, a young Jewish male to marry another young Jewish female, or is there, are there further levels of categorization? I mean, like you've talked about immigrant communities moving westward, coming into these cities, especially, you know, a city like Paris or Berlin. Do you find ever that they would also like their, you know, like their son to marry like a young Polish Jewish girl or a young Lithuanian or something Right, right. Like no, actually, okay, so this is less in the book and more in another article that I've read recently, but it's still really okay. important and it's still, it's still oh, well. important. We can go there anyhow. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jewish social studies for those who want to know. Um, first of all, Perfect. yeah, this matters. Great okay, problem. so the level of religiosity matters. Um, sometimes hair color matters, but politics make it very, yeah, and blondes still win out. Um, um, body size matters, tendency to describe, more women are described as thin, especially in the 1920s. Um, uh, but there's definitely politics matters. Politics matters a lot. So, but here where things become complicated is that citizenship laws, especially in Germany, become very challenging. 
In other words, if a woman marries a man who doesn't have German citizenship in the 1920s, first of all, she leaves us her citizenship. And it's very hard in the 1920s for a non-German citizen to gain German citizenship. The citizen, beforehand, it's easier, but it starts to become as long as 10, 20 years to become a German citizen. And it, women then don't want to necessarily marry someone who's not a German citizen, in the 1920s at least. What's interesting is what happens after 1933, because this is a time of persecution. And losing citizenship and suddenly gaining another citizenship can have its advantages. Um, so the, though there we do see, but you don't see advertisements for, you don't see advertisements asking, um, for someone what you'll have from a person of a different citizenship. What you do have is people saying, I am a German citizen or I am not a German citizen, but I've been here for a long time. Um, in other words, this sort of hint at, okay, this might be a, I might be able to get citizenship soon, or I'm, I'm, I'm not a citizen, but I speak the language I'm, I'm, I've got. I'm going to stay here. I'm not going to go anywhere. So those things do, um, those are very important. Definitely important. I see. Very, very interesting. Um, okay. So you talked about this a bit with our discussion of marriage. Um, but one thing that you describe in your book is that there's this flip side to the turn towards the individual, which is this heightened anxiety, you know, especially among, older members of the community about the future of Jewishness and the future of the Jewish community. So how did communities and individuals then try to ensure the future of Judaism by creating new spaces for children? Uh, what did they hope, you know, that the next generation of Judaism would look like? So one of the things, definitely when we take a look at anxiety, one of the things that started to amuse me over time was how often I found expressions of anxiety. So if you look back at the late 19th century and you look at the post-war era, they're still anxious. The writers in the Jewish press seem to very, be very, very concerned about the, about the future. Um, and so when you see that over the long durée, you start to wonder exactly just, oh, do they have a good reason to be uh, anxious or do they not? And one of the things that I noticed, especially since we're talking about children, is bar mitzvah rates. They were very upset about bar mitzvah rates. The people, um, members of the consistory in Paris were very upset about bar mitzvah rates at the turn of the 20th century. But actually, the rates were pretty high. I do speculate that I think some of it has to do with their concern about um, East European Jewish children who would not necessarily have been participating in consistorial synagogues. So it's a question of integration within the Jewish community, tensions between one side and the other. The anxiety of bar mitzvah rates is much more logical given the numbers after the Second World War. There we see the um, rates decrease um, much more noticeably, but it is interesting to see, and this is also the challenges of doing uh, emotional history as to how we, how seriously we take some of the statements or how, how do we understand the statements that are being, um, that they're voicing to us? Um, the question of how they um, try to ensure the future, there are some really interesting innovations, at least for the time. Um, one of them was the creation of summer camps. Perhaps some people hearing this will think summer camps. That doesn't sound particularly revolutionary, but it was new. This is definitely something new in the late 1880s and 1890s. Um, this is a new animal uh, on the a new institution on the scene. Um, the first uh, summer camps, though, first Jewish summer camps, on one hand, exist because they're concerned about Christian camps that started a couple years beforehand, both in Switzerland and the United States, and then they open up across Europe. Their first concern is that there might be Christian proselytizing. So they are worried about how, who's going. They're worried about the children. They're worried about the children's 
religious futures there, but mainly actually what they're worried about is the working class. So both, especially you, you can read about it, it's more a rhetorical reality in St. Petersburg. They do exist in the Imperial Russia, but they don't, there aren't really, there's some passing references to summer camps in St. Petersburg, but they really, they flourish a lot more in other parts of the Imperial, of, uh, of Imperial Russia. And they also flourish very heavily in Berlin and in Paris. And the early camps across the board are really interested in making sure that the urban poor who are, you know, seen as sickly air quotes for those who are not sure, um, are getting, are getting proper medical attention and food, healthy food. And so the success of the early summer camps were measured in kilos. In other words, how many kilos the children gained. Um, and then what you have over time, it's a fairly, it's a generation roughly, um, where, of transition, where you have a realization that you can actually use these, not just to ensure that the young working class gets better medical attention, gets better food, gets out of the uh, horrible air of um, industrializing urban centers of Europe, but that they are also learning Jewish values. And that could mean Jewish history or folklore or religious lessons. One case, even an early case where the boys were taken or their camp overlapped with Rosh Hashanah. So the children, which is it's an unusual choice in some respects. These are places that one would imagine they'd be with their families. And, with, and these are families that are allowing the children to go, of course, not abducted. You know, families are agreeing to this. The children are, being, are, are going away on a fairly major holiday. Um, and so this allows um, religious messages to be taught at this time. We know that some uh, summer camps over time also start teaching Hebrew. They start teaching Yiddish. And so they become not just spaces with Jewish children in them, but they become, as a result of the educational method, in various different um, ways, they become Jewish spaces, spaces where Jewish topics are taught. Now, there's no one way. There's no one curriculum. It really depends on the institution. It depends on the summer camp. And similarly, you also have youth movements associations that try to first deal with the health, the physical health of young, uh, the youth, um, trying to get them into great outdoors, encourage them into physical education. But they were also there to promote political messages like Zionism, or they were also integrationist groups. Um, and all of them then still had some sort of interest. Even the most integrationist groups were still really still desired to promote strong attachments to Jewishness. They wanted to cultivate the Jewish soul. Um, and in that sense, what the future was supposed to look like wasn't you know, homogenous. There wasn't one ideal bright future. Um, if we think that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, the future of the Jewish community was also in the eye of each individual beholder. So we're in an individual-based community now. And that means that all of these different organizations, all of these different groups that come to exist are reflecting personal tastes, but also personal political predilections and concerns. And we see this all the more pre um, prevalent. And so you really have a plurality of visions for the future. And the French Jewish case is really helpful and instructive because there were Yiddishist socialist groups. There were Zionist movements. There were integrationist and secular associations. There were religious movements. There was associations for Sephardi Jews. There were French Jewish groups, and there were also immigrant groups. And there were even a couple of groups that tried to integrate between the two. So you really had a very number of flavors, if you will. Um, every subgroup within the Jewish community would find its way of, of trying to either create a summer camp or foster a youth movement. And you have this very strong plurality that exists and each with its own political or cultural vision. But what they all had in common was a concern for the youth. 
and the beliefs that the changes in Jewish society and its individualization necessitated really particular attention to Jewish children and youth in a way that I don't necessarily think was um, as prominent as beforehand. There was really a belief in the need for leadership, in role models, but all of them were dedicated in one way or the other in ensuring or in trying to ensure that children and youth emerged with a strong sense of Jewish self-identification, whether it was based on religious or secular or uh, politically distinct precepts. They all shared that common belief that the really cheesy line, the children are the future, that is what they all had in common. Right, right. I see. So what about Jewish rights and holidays? Um, How did they transform or did they transform in accordance with, you know, these major cultural shifts that we're seeing? I definitely see that the bar mitzvah, in terms of rites of passage and continuing the discussion about children, we definitely see the bar mitzvah. It's still very important, but it's becoming increasingly or became increasingly a family celebration. Lots of memoir literature talk about it. Um, We see references in the memoir literature about um, the event as a time with family, time when family gets together. Some reference the, you know, the loot that they got. And there was a large amount of presents that was received, the guests who came. I mean, I came across one um, memoir, um, uh, Helena Eich, and she doesn't say anything about what her son actually recited, what he did, what he said, what the Devar Torah was there, Devar Torah, nothing religious at all. But we have a long list of the presents and the, and the guests. It's a party. It's a wonderful party. Um, and so in that sense, religious method, uh, messages could, not always, there are certainly other, and it's not about orthodox or reform or a-religious. It really, it depends on the family. It, but religious messages could take a very distant or third place. I, and what I mean by that is I, knew, I can think of also an example of a um, William Stern, William Stern um, who wrote about his own reform confirmation and it was very moving it was a very important moment for him so it's not just it's not just the you know the orthodox day in one way I mean, it's, it's not that simplistic by any sense. but this does raise the ire of religious authorities um, and leaders and it caused i think in a lot of respects the religious and lay um, leaders to take a more pro- uh, proactive approach they first of all they see what's happening individualization of the community in general they see that children are affiliating through summer camps and now the question is okay wonderful let's try and bring them back to the synagogue let's try and bring them back to what seems to be a firmly much more in their own logical, um, much more Jewish space. And what we see is the creation or at least popularization of new rites of passage. And there's also children's services, but there's also a lot of prescriptive literature that is written during this time. And it's done to bring children and youths, male and female. And here's also a really important point. It's also young girls who are being brought. They're being supposed they're, the idea is to bring them back into the synagogue. So in, um, so in Germany, you have the Konfirmation, so the Confirmation. And in France, you also have a very similar um, uh, institution, the, initi- uh, the religious initiation. Um, and these are ceremonies that are, are done sometimes instead of, and in other cases, done in parallel to bar mitzvah services. And they're really important for girls especially because these are attempts to bring the girls into the synagogue. There's a discussion of what, well, they're going to be future mothers. There isn't gender equality in the minds of this is the idea of like uh, making sure that uh, young Jews know a basic understand, have a basic understanding of Judaism, that they feel emotional connection to the synagogue, that they keep on coming and that they are 
um, confirmed in that sense in their religious precepts. Um, we also see so that their children. Yeah, exactly. No, it's all it's, so it's a long term. It's a long term investment <laughs> <Right>. here. Um, <laughs> but again, trying mm-hmm. to bring children back. We also see this on a different. We also see this among adults, especially in Paris. You don't see this as much in actually. Um, it's a very top down process in Paris where they're really trying to promote religious weddings, the wedding ceremony in Paris. In St. Petersburg and in um, Berlin, uh, religious uh, authorities are far less bent out of shape about where the wedding happens. They would like to see religious weddings. And in Imperial Russia, it has to be religious anyhow. But um, in that sense, it's very, again, you see these impulses in certain times and in certain places to try and bring people back into the synagogue and give meaning um, to uh, the space and to the religious space. We also see transformations in the way certain holidays were celebrated. And here we sort of double back onto balls um, because they just become this really popular transcontinental way to celebrate holidays like Hanukkah and Purim, um, which has become the ideal way of celebrating uh, Purim for a long number uh, in the long years is like the mask masquerade ball, because of course, highly the idea of dressing up for Purim, go for it. Um, there's also, even though Sukkot also gets balls in certain times in certain places. And once in a while in, Odd places, Paris included, there were even Yom Kippur balls um, by anarchists, of course. Who else? Um, I mean, they purposely go out and gorge themselves on food and dancing. This is not going to. This is fantastic. Definitely <laughs> against the grain. Um, and so we see this. Yes, yes. Because the history was very happy. <laughs> yeah, no, they were. Yeah, the, that raised ire. Um, actually, Montreal, if we have our Canadian moment here, Montreal was also a site for. Um, for anarchist balls on um, Yom Kippur. But what you have then is <laughs> you have a popular leisure act- activity, again, a ball, that is harnessed to celebrate Jewish holidays and it spreads political messages. And the first group, and here I love this also because um, one of the few times where I could say, and it starts in St. Petersburg, or at least for the three cities, Zionists in St. Petersburg really early on in 1879 hold a Hanukkah ball. And um, this becomes very popular among Zionists to hold Hanukkah balls. Yeah, it's pretty early. Um, and it's St. Petersburg. Nobody can tell me that it's always west to east. Here we have east to west. It's important. Um, and this become they, it, the popularity of the event. It eventually transcends um, political persuasion. It becomes such a popular way of interacting, a popular way of celebrating the holiday that by the 1920s, it's just everyone's doing it. Doesn't matter what the political persuasion. And for that matter, even in the uh, turn at the turn of the century, perhaps even a little bit before, I'm forgetting the exact dates. But in Paris as well, you have a Zionist organization, and they invite one of the head rabbis to come and give a talk. And he's well, basically the tenor of his uh, talk is not exactly Zionist. You should all feel proud to be here in France, Jews in Paris, but you know, dance anyhow. To use the, again, again, speech is why they're there. The speech is why they come. They actually get to give a slightly different message than what the Zionist organization, but they realize that this is a fun way. This is an effective way of celebrating the holiday. And over time, it becomes really important. Into the 1950s, I can point, I have examples of, of balls, of Hanukkah balls, that were really, really important in East and West Berlin. Where and even in West East Berlin, where the community before the wall goes up, you know, members, young members of the community leave West Berlin, go to East Berlin for the night to have a great dance, 
and then come back. And then they have a West Berlin um, Hanukkah ball. I'm, I'm not sure if they were trying to just prove who could uh, throw the best party, but they're all participating. Young Jews are found it really, really important to go to these events. Um, so they have really long staying power. And that, again, it changes. And it's not without, again, it causes anxiety. The Yom Kippur balls and the use of leisure space, the use of restaurants, what could happen, what might be happening on a restaurant and Yom Kippur certainly raised um, eyebrows, raised concern, raised anxiety, raised the ire of any number of people of the community. Um, but it also allowed people to celebrate, allowed people to get together. And I think in the post-war era, um, Berlin Jews, for instance, wrote about how important it was for them to have these moments of togetherness and how the quote-unquote traditional Hanukkah ball um, was a meaningful event for them. So let's continue this discussion of sort of the legacies of some of these transformations into the post-war period. Because in your book, you connect what you've told us about Jewish life in the decades before the Second World War with Reconstruction, the reconstruction of the Jewish community after World War II and the Holocaust. Um, And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about um, what Jews in the post-war period, so survivors of the Holocaust, drew from you know, these pre-war methods of constructing community. It's really important to make that there's nothing in the book that tries to downplay the devastation that happens as a result of the Holocaust. But what I do point out is that these models, this pattern of um, gathering, of belonging, of celebration is still in the minds of the people who survive. And it's becomes a sort of a, a way that they want to recreate it becomes it's sort of patterns that they can fall back on it, to an extent, depending on where and when Berlin community is so much smaller. So they can't, the Berlin Jewish community never has the same variety of spaces, the variety of associations, the variety of choice that it did before the Holocaust. Um, but there's still these echoes of an attempt to focus on leisure, whether it is how they are, um, meet with one another as adults or it's how they educate children. And you see this across Europe. We see it in the, at least in the three cities, though, to different, different ways and, and um, to different levels. Certainly we see that the ways adults got together and celebrated or the way they raised children were really important. Um, in Berlin, you have a much smaller number of organizations, but they still sought to meet in cafes and in restaurants. But what I found interesting is a number of them chose back rooms in a restaurant or Jewish restaurants. Sometimes it had to do with kashrut. Sometimes it had to do with the fact that it's a Zionist organization that clearly somebody was observant. Somebody, so you're going you're gonna to accommodate. There are practical considerations. But I did notice that a number of the places that were mentioned had were institutions with Jewish pasts. Um, Rabbi Levinson writes in one of his, uh, in a memoir, he has a couple of books that he writes, that when he would enter Café Wien, um, the orchestra would always play Kol Nidre, which I thought was a very, very sad metaphor. But what I also then did some digging and discovered that Café Wien, that his choice of a place to go to um, when he went out um, in the city, was actually an institution that had a Jewish past, that its owner had been, an, oh, had been a Hungarian Jew, their children had been murdered in the Holocaust, the husbands, both the husband and the wife survive. They open up, they go back to the cafe. The husband passes away then of natural causes and the wife continues. But it's a space that has a Jewish historical resonance to it. And so you see these echoes 
a historic a Holocaust memory. So on one hand, you have a, an, a behavioral pattern or a cultural pattern that had started beforehand where Jews are um, tending sites for organizations where associations are meeting. But then you notice that Jews are also attending and going to spaces that have that have a pre-Holocaust memory to them. Um, celebrations also, the one of the cases of the, of the Hanukkah ball uh, in East Berlin is also a similar institution where there's a, there's a clear um, historical memory, a Jewish historical memory to the place. And so you see the coming together of history and Holocaust memory especially become really important behind the choices. So there is there's a commonality in the idea of getting together, of associations meeting in a certain way, but then we see how the immediate past has influenced uh, the exact space in which associations are meeting. And this is also very poignant. The, the interaction of space and historical memory is also very important and poignant in Paris and in the Leningrad. In Paris, for instance, you really see a strong in, uh, concern about taking care of, the ch of children. Of course, um, you have Jewish uh, organizations and associations that had been before the war um, had existed to help the, the informal education of Jewish children um, or their health suddenly emerged during the Holocaust as um, rescue organizations. And after the war, then they are like the Ose, for instance, they are charged with taking care of around 10,000 orphans. And so there's this really strong very practical need to take care of the children. Think about what they've gone through, how they're going to be brought back into the society and how, as they discussed in the Jewish press, how they're going to be re-Judaized. In other words, how they're going to be made into Jews again. Uh, this is also in the context of a number of these children are left with Christian organizations, especially Catholic um, organizations. So they're, they're religious um, precepts. And what fascinates they might have been actually baptized. Yeah, some of them baptized, some of them are not. It really depends. Yeah. Um, but the mm -hmm. idea is that the it's not what the what we see in the Jewish press is not only that the synagogue is the place that this happens. They certainly are very interested in making sure that at least if you look at the lay uh, leadership and how it's expressed in the Jewish press, they're clearly interested in showing that all of the orphans are having their bar mitzvahs, that the initiation really or rituals are still happening, but they're also sending them to summer camps. And they see the summer camp, again, as this place to bring children back to Judaism. And it becomes a, a sort of a, a staple in the community. So we see, again, this, uh, the use of a pre-existing institution, like the summer camp, something that was developed beforehand that had already proven its usefulness in the informal education of children, but now being taken upon with greater urgency. Um, with a much greater message behind it, with greater uh, historical weight and, and pain behind it as well. Um, and in Leningrad, um, what I show and talk about it in the 1950s is that, first of all, you it's not the time and the place. In the early 1950s, it's not the time and place to be Jewish, openly. And, and this is Stalinist, anti-Semitic, uh, part of the anti-Semitic waves. It's a bad time. Um, and so all of our mitzvahs that are celebrated are done clandestinely. Um, the religious describe it, their lives as living like conversos. But what we have is in the 1950s as the description of the thaw. We have the text right now description. It's the time of the thaw. And there is at least one moment um, when there's an attempt to create a Jewish cultural event in Leningrad. Um, and they stay, it's basically a staging of Jewish war memory. And it's done in Yiddish. And it's a performance that included works by Sholem Aleichem. And the, and the event, this concert ends with 
the song of the partisans, a Yiddish um, partisan song. And it's one of the most in your face declarations of Jewish difference and Jewish difference in terms of war memory and of Holocaust memory that you'll see. And it certainly was against the grain in terms of how um, Holocaust memory or sorry, how the war was recalled and commemorated in the uh, Soviet Union. Holocaust wasn't part of the story. And there is definitely a feeling at the time that this might be something new. But as I point out, and this is where we talk about difference between these um, communities, it doesn't go anywhere. Um, it's also in Yiddish, which is fabulous and wonderful, but the community by this point is also Russian speaking largely. So there's no, there's no glimmer of a present or a future Russian Jewish culture um, at that time in that place. And so we really see the, also the importance then of the larger political uh, situation whether the larger political situation is willing to allow for Jewish difference to be spoken out, whether the community is large enough to um, support itself and to support its various different differences within it. Because also just like in the 1920s, Paris has all sorts of flavors of different Jewish communities and associations and groups. It continues also after the war. And Leningrad had the Jewish population to have done something similar, but the political situation really stops that from happening. Um, and I think those are also really important ways that we understand what, what the future of Jewishness and Jewish affiliation could be like and, and what makes it healthy and what can allow for a healthy situation and, and what doesn't. Well, Sarah, we've taken up a lot of your time, but um, before we let you go and enjoy what I hope is a very warm night in Jerusalem, um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you're working on next. Um, so one of the questions you'd asked earlier about things that I'd found when I was digging in the archives. And one of the things that I'd found when I was digging in the archives were a collection of diaries, um, about a family. And this was in Jerusalem. Um, and the diaries were written by the uh, mother, the family, um, and, uh, and there was a set of diaries for each of her three children. And I was flipping through them. I really didn't know what exactly and what I'd opened up as one of these dusty boxes. Um, and within 10 minutes, I found a short excerpt, a short little entry where the mother um, told an anecdote about how her youngest daughter had prayed to Goethe instead of to God, because they had a picture of Goethe. Um, and I thought, oh my goodness, this is too good. Um, I ended up writing an article about it. It took me some time to sort of work my way through it. But what I really realized, I mean, it seems to be like really reflect everything that we think we know about German Jews, the assimilated um, culture building over everything. But reading the diaries more carefully, not just finding a great anecdote at the very beginning, was that the diaries were actually revealed a lot more about their personal religiosity and their, um, their particular understandings of Judaism and the lines that even the most liberal Jewish families would draw. So it was fine to go vote. It was fine to pray to Goethe. It was not fine to um, pray to Jesus, <laughs> the oldest child. They had, they, they had, they were trying to be very open-minded parents. They had a Christian Bible. The children were allowed to read from it, and the, their eldest and also their middle son were started to show a little bit too much excitement about Jesus and his beautiful halo, and the mother. The, their palpable irritation that emerged from the diaries. Um, and so she's trying to be open-minded, but it's clear that she's putting lines, drawing lines in the sand. And all of this, again, wrote an article about it, had some fun, put it to the side. Um, but all of this got me thinking about how we understand religious change in German Jewish and especially Central European Jewish history. 
We have all sorts of ideas about um, how the community is overwhelmingly secular or non-religious or perhaps at best liberal, but it's not as simple as that. Um, We know and what I could see is that Judaism remains important, just sometimes in different ways. And the great work by Marianne Kaplan, um, who's pointed to also the continuation of Judaism as being an important, personally um, meaningful um, aspect of German Jews' lives, um, got me thinking about when and where we see women in this story. I mean, she writes, Marianne Kaplan writes a lot about um, ritual and belief and how Jewish women maintained it in the family home. But I also noticed over time that there were Jewish women who started to take on public roles, public leadership positions. Uh, They could be writers of Sidorim, of inspirational and educational or devotional material. They were lay leaders in the community. And in one case, out of Regina Jonas, there was also a woman who became a rabbi. So the next book um, takes a look at who were some of the women involved in this change? How did this emerge? How did this situation emerge and why? Um, And what motivated women to take up leadership roles? And what does this mean for modern Judaism, especially modern Judaism in Central Europe? But that will be, I think, uh, another topic for another podcast. Um, (laughs) Yes, I'm very much looking forward to reading that and to having you back um, once once it becomes a book. That sounds fantastic. A great sort of second second chapter to this story that just looks at it from a different exactly different angle